When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Football Social Daily with German Donner Kebab. Kebabs done right and delivered right to you via Uber Eats and Deliveroo. Welcome to Football Social Daily, heading into the Easter weekend with a load of your questions answered. This is our AQA podcast. We wrap up the week with it every single week during this coronavirus lockdown period. Any question answered, and you can get your questions in for next week's show via Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Just search the Sports Social on any of those places and you will find our accounts. We've got a full house, a full house of football Easter egg heads. Today for the podcast, we've got Marley Anderson. Hello. Niall McCall. Hello, Jim. And we've got Adam Brown as well. Hiya, Jim. You're right. Also, a little reminder that this show is brought to you with the help of German Donner Kebab, who have a whole load of restaurants right across the UK. If you fancy something a little bit different for your Easter tea, some lean grilled meat or fresh salad or toasted delicious bread, then they are still offering a delivery service. You can find your nearest restaurant at germandonnerkebab.com or you can search for them in your Uber Eats or Deliver Roo app and see if they deliver to your area. Also, before we crack on, can I just say we've not had a podcast review since the very start of April. So come on, up your game. Let's be having you, in the words of Delia Smith. If you want to shout out on the show, get on to Apple, Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you use to listen to your podcasts. Drop us a little note. Tell us what you think of what we do and the funnier the review the better we'll give you a shout out maybe next week so as i said this is the aqa podcast we're going to rattle through a load of your questions and cover off a whole load of different topics and we're going to kick off with a question from harriet in birmingham who's asked very topically do you think the premier league's hashtag player together scheme goes far enough now if you haven't caught up with the news recently this is from last night when the Premier League, a group of Premier League players, around 150, I think it was in total, launched a collective initiative to generate funds for the National Health Service and distribute them, in their words, where they are needed most. The whole thing's called Players Together. It's been set up to help those fighting 
on the NHS front line. And according to the press release that they sent out and issued on social media, it involves Premier League players collaborating together to create a voluntary initiative separate to any other league or club conversation. It's a generous gesture on the face of it. There isn't a lot of meat on the bones as to exactly what it is they're going to do or how much they're going to donate at the moment. But, Adam, does it feel like the right thing to do from your point of view? Yeah, it definitely feels like the right thing. Um, As I said, when we get a bit more meat on the bones of exactly what it entails and we get into the nitty-gritty of it a bit more, I think we'll be able to make a better, more astute kind of... um, you know, decision on on whether they think it's enough. Uh, obviously, you know, players were coming in for a lot of criticism, fairly or unfairly, yesterday after the government kind of made some big statements about you know football players should be doing more, and we don't know because individually we're getting a lot of players who, who probably are doing a lot more, but aren't getting the glory and the limelight from it, and aren't getting the media attention. Um, but I think it's probably better just to appease people, and uh, you know, let's not you know let's not get twisted about it the fact is that it's going to benefit the nhs it's going to benefit people that need that money but i think having one kind of blanket um sort of approach to it is probably better than depending on clubs making their own individual decision or putting it on players to make their decision i think it's probably better to have one kind of approved um you know kind of approach to it i think for me makes more sense i'm interested to see exactly what it's going to entail moving forward but I think it's definitely a step in the right direction and we had this number of 30% of wages banded around that players would take as a cut but I mean there were loads of reasons why that didn't feel like the right move that players earn different amounts it'd affect them all differently that clubs Mm. would benefit from that more than anyone else as well was another issue but this at least has come from the players themselves Niall it's them taking action Yeah, and that's encouraging to see. It's quite spiriting. And as we've mentioned before on the show, even in the last couple of weeks, players do get a bit of stick because of the amount of money they earn. And that's not always their fault. You know, it's not their fault that a club said, right, we're signing you on. Here's your 50 grand signing on bonus and we're paying you 100 grand a week. You're not going to go, oh, well, I think that's a bit too much, mate. I just don't think that's ever going to happen. So um, to be perfectly honest, I think that it's really encouraging to see the players actually put their heads together. And we spoke about it on Wednesday's podcast too. Alan Shearer says he was com- said he was confident um, as a former player and obviously Premier League record goal scorer that you know, the players of the modern day and age, which are probably cut from a different cloth to what Shearer was, um, he was confident that they were still going to put their heads together and be able to come up with something. And we know Jordan Henderson led a meeting of Premier League captains or a WhatsApp video call or whatever it might have been. Um, and they all decided that they did want to contribute in some way. Because whilst there is no football going on, it is easy to then sort of point the finger at players and saying, well, you're not doing anything. You're not training. Some of mm. you have kind of broken the rules. And although there's plenty of people up and down the country that aren't following government guidelines, sadly, when you're in a high-profile position like a footballer, everything's accentuated and magnified a hundred times. And, you know, you should know better is what everyone says. So this is really nice to see from the footballers. It'll be interesting to know um, what the figures are uh, and how the money's going to be divvied out to the different NHS foundations. Of course, it's going into some big fund at the moment I think that's my understanding Mm. of it and then that'll be sort of divided out equally or however they choose to divide it out I don't know between different NHS foundations so it'd be interesting to see how much money there is and where the money goes and what the money is spent on but obviously right now the 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 praise should go to the players for actually doing what they said they were going to do and following through with that. I did a little bit of maths on this and I tried to work out what the Premier League's total 
monthly output was in terms of salaries for players. And there's loads of different figures all over the place, so it's impossible to get an exact gauge on it. But I think conservatively, you'd say Premier League clubs in total for a month, their wage bill is around £150 million, pounds, wow. which is a, a lot of money. Uh, so 10% of that is 15 million quid, which if you could put 10%, and I'm sure most Premier League footballers could afford 10% of their wages, if you put that into a fund, that's a decent wedge for NHS benefit. And you've got to, I mean, this is what footballers are doing. It's just up to the rest of the UK's millionaire community to kind of follow suit now, I guess. Well, this is the thing, I think, Jim. I think this is a big a big talking point is that, you know, I'm not saying, oh, I'm not trying to say woe is me for footballers. And, you know, they're, they're very rich and very successful and they don't need people to kind of have the back too much. But, you know, they are the first target, aren't they? When anyone talks about, you know, high wages, they're the first ones that come in for the, for the criticism. And obviously it doesn't help when you have mm. got individual players, you know, disobeying the rules and almost making it seem like some footballers are above the rules that everyone else has got to adhere to in these times but I'm glad it's come from the players this and it hasn't been something that's been led by the clubs I think that's the key really that you've got you know for every player that's made those mistakes we all know the players that have been in the in the in the, uh, in the press over the past couple of weeks but you've got people like Jordan Henderson and I'm sure you know let's let's be honest the majority of the Premier League players are going to want to do the right thing you know they, they, those people that are making the mistakes are in the minority but the majority of the players in the Premier League, of course, they want to help the NHS. Of course, they want to, they want everyone around them to, to to you know this situation to be to to, to improve. So, I think that you know if if, this, if football can be the lead in this, and we can look at some other millionaires and billionaires, like I don't think they're mm. going to follow suit quite as easily as the footballers really. So actually, let's give them a little bit of credit for getting this initiative together. I think. I worked it out, Jim. Yeah. I worked it out that if there's roughly 500 Premier League players in the league across all 20 teams, um, if you count uh, Ndombele and Jose yesterday and then you count Grealish and Kyle Walker kind of breaking the rules, that equates to 0.8% of Premier League footballers have broken the rules in the government guidelines. And the majority, and the general public. Exactly. Mm. And the majority of them have put some money into this uh, into this scheme. Yeah. So, I mean, we should praise them where credit where credit's due. Promising yeah. start, I think we can say, Harriet, but we need to kind of see how this one pans out. But great, the players have done something off their back. Right, Niall, you've got the next question. I do indeed. This is a question that comes from Dangerous Dave. Um, I don't <laughs> know how dangerous name. he is or why he's dangerous, <laughs> but that's what his name is. He's ignoring the lockdown, isn't yeah. he? He's just wandering yeah. out all over the place. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, I'll make sure you get the answer to this one right, Niall who's dangerous you don't get it wrong it, well this might be a dangerous question have FIFA done the right thing by moving the summer transfer window so this came out a couple of days ago if you haven't seen it uh, effectively FIFA have spoken to major stakeholders in the game and they've decided that the football transfer windows across the world are going to be moved um, the summer transfer window in particular but obviously we're talking in, in prospect in um from the viewpoint of European leagues here. So it's now been accepted by pretty much all the stakeholders that FIFA spoke to that the season is not going to be finished by the 30th of June, which I thought was a pretty optimistic date anyway. And a lot of player contracts end on the 30th of June. So loads of people were saying, well, what happens to those players that are out of contract on the 30th of June if the season goes beyond that date? Well, now it's been agreed that those deals will actually be automatically extended until when the season actually ends. So they will get a grace period of a few extra months or weeks or however long it takes for the season to end. Then there'll be a short gap before the new season starts. If it does start on time, we don't know, obviously. But there will be a, a sort of a mini gap in which contracts would then end and new contracts would then begin. Um, this 
is kind of a general uh, take from FIFA, but it's not going to work in every circumstance, I don't think. So I think this is a good start from the... Um, from the from the lads and ladies over at FIFA, I think this is something that needed to be done, and actually, it seems like quite a sensible decision, to be honest. Uh, yeah, I think this is um, pretty straightforward from FIFA. Um, it seems like the 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 right thing to do to just automatically extend everybody's um, contract because everybody's contract seems to end on the thirtieth of June, which doesn't sp- like specifically signal the end of the season, but that's that is what that date is for. That is the general acceptance that that's the end of the season, everything's done and, and wrapped up by then, all European and, and domestic competitions are done by then. So to add, to automatically to extend them makes sense because you don't want players, you don't want squads having to say, well, we, well, we can't play him because it's the 4th of July and he's technically out of contract. And it just creates a whole new uh, storm of, of legal proceedings of, of uh, lawyers getting involved and players, um, players saying, "Well, I can't sign for anyone else because this season hasn't finished yet, so you can't register." So there was only really one solution to this, and it seems like FIFA have, have tapped the ball into the back of the net in terms of saying, "Right, well, everyone's still covered until we do get this season season ended." Because there was probably a few uh, a few lawyers, a few sports lawyers knocking around trying to uh, trying to look into things of how things would work on potential lawsuits and things like that but just on this as well I was thinking when this was all up in the air a few days ago I was thinking why do you know if if we started playing again and you've got a player that's out of contract and it's like the 2nd of July like you've had years to sort that guy's contract out so if you if you were planning on running his contract down he shouldn't be that much of a loss to your team because you were prepared to let him go anyway if he's not under contract, you were never going to play him. So if if FIFA hadn't done this and said contracts are final and we can't be bothered with all the legal proceedings that's going to come out of the, the back end of it, I would have just said, like, well, tough. If you've not renewed his contract, tough. If, you've, if you were going to have him as part of your squad, you would have done it by now. So Arsenal um, might have lost whoever. Newcastle would have lost um, Matty Longstaff, for example, who, who I know is up for the end of the season. But... If you haven't renewed his contract, it's it's your fault. But FIFA have avoided this now anyway by by announcing this uh, this rule anyway. I think this is kind of it. It's a bit of a no brainer for FIFA in terms of they had to do that. They had to extend the they had to offer con- contract extensions as an option, and they had to move the window. But at the same time, it doesn't really solve any of those problems because players who don't want to extend contracts aren't going to have to clubs who don't want to extend contracts to players I don't think they're going to have to necessarily extend those contracts either and there's also going to be players who take advantage of this situation who say well look if you want me on this short-term extension if you want me for the next two months then surely they're within their rights to ask for more money to then stick around and play for those extra two months or something like that. It probably isn't the spirit of in the spirit of the game and it wouldn't be the most um, mor- morally correct move, but I 100% guarantee there will be players that try and do that. And that's not something that's governed by football in any way. That's something that's governed by legislation around employment. So FIFA haven't really solved the problem here, but they have kind of allowed clubs the parameters to sort the problems themselves, I guess. 
I think they've added clarity. I think that's what they've done. I mean, I don't think they've problem solved, as you say, Jim. And I get exactly where Marley's coming from. It is tough luck on clubs. But I also see Marley's point of saying, well, if you weren't going to play him for the other 38 games of the season, then what makes you think that you're going to play him for the, the, the remainder of the games that we've got, you know, in the summer or whatever it may be when the rest of the season gets completed? I think this yeah. is more a, a a message which has come out from FIFA towards the players rather than the clubs. I think Marley's right. I think the clubs probably will have their ideas about what their squads are going to look like and their squad planning is going to be like over the summer. They probably would have understood that there would be players that have come to the end of their contracts and it would be up to them to bring new players in or bring free agents in or whatever they may be. Um, and I think the clubs probably would have had their heads around that a lot before the players will. And I think this is probably more of a solution for the players. So they know that they're not going to be left high and dry for a couple of months as free agents while there is football going on in which they could be picking up money. So I think for me, that is probably where this message from FIFA resonates the most. It's with those players that are going to be out of contract rather than the clubs that probably already knew what they were going to do with those players that were coming to the end of their deals. I think depending on you know how long this all takes as well, I just love the idea of clubs and agents trying to set up Zoom meetings to try and thrash out contract talks. An agent, <laughs> an agent's being like, "Can you resend the code again? I can't get in. It's not working. It's not working properly." <laughs> right, let's have something a little bit lighter for the next question. Adam, what have you got? Uh, so Tom on Instagram uh, sent in a question saying, "What's your favourite Premier League season ever?" Oh, this is tough. It's a tough one. Obviously, I'm a Man City fan, so I'm going to default straight to the 2011-2012 uh, season, where not oh, only sure. did, did we win the league, but we won it in spectacular fashion. Where you get that—I mean, you can't even listen. You can't even write it, can you? To to snatch the title away from your bitter arch rivals in literally the last kick of the ball in the season are oh, unbelievable um, so I, I default to that I also want to give a big uh, mention to the 2017-2018 uh, Man City team as well which were unbelievable I mean sorry the um, the 2018-2019 the team where we just won everything uh, and also yeah. the first ever Premier League season I know Man United won it but I was only really young um, on in, in the first. I must have been about six or seven, and it was the first the ninety two ninety three season, and it's probably the first season where I was pro properly aware of, you know, Italian ninety was like a distant memory to me, but ninety two ninety three was the first season where I became properly aware of the league system and and how it worked and everything like that, and I remember it being this big shiny product, and obviously the Sky money kicked in, and I don't know, there's something a little bit special about that about that season and it was the, the, the onset of the Premier League but if you're going to ask me for one particular one I'm going to go for 2011-2012 um, just, just for the Aguero moment It's a dead easy question if you're a Man City fan this though isn't it? Yeah It's like there it is, is only yeah. one option when you're a West Ham fan like me it's You're struggling like, do, do you pick the season we finished 8th or the season we finished ninth? It's like Oh, oh it's so tough isn't it Jim Really difficult So I've gone for something that doesn't really affect West Ham but it was a season that had everything it had rivalry it had passion it had a race for the title that went right to the wire it had loads of drama and it was the 96-97 season so pretty much all the way through you had four teams going for the league it was eventually won by Manchester United, but they didn't have an easy run of it at all. You might remember they lost 5-0 to Newcastle, Marley, that season. <laughs> they also lost 6-3 to Southampton and wore that infamous grey oh, yeah. kit that Alex Ferguson claimed turned players invisible. You also had Arsene Wenger. He was in the league for the very first time, and he went on to become one of the, despite what some Arsenal fans say, one of the greatest ever Premier League managers. And there was a bit of a shift that year in terms of foreign players coming into the league as well so you saw a load of foreign players coming in including Gianfranco Zola who played his first season 
in the Premier League that year. So there was a load going on. And if you just look at the team of the year, you can see how good this season was. David Seaman in goal, Gary Neville, Tony Adams, Mark Wright and Bromby at the back. You had David Beckham, Roy Keane, David Batty and Steve McMenamin across the middle and then Shearer and Ian Wright up front. It's just a, It was just a great year for football. 90... What season was it? Uh, 96, 97 season. It was just a brilliant year. And incidentally, West Ham stayed up on the very final day of the season. It was the year we signed Dave Kitson and John Hartson. It was the great escape. So, yeah, that was my favourite Premier League. Was there not any foreign players in the Premier League? Listening to that top 11, it's like the only one was the Bromby. All the rest of them are British and Irish. What do you there were foreign players, but it was kind of one of the first years where they were starting to really flood in. So you had, um, what's his name, Florin Radachuo, was it, the, uh, Middlesbrough? Oh, he yeah. played and they got relegated that season. He came in that year. Eric Cantona was at Manchester United by then, of course. So there were a few quality foreign players. I mean, West Ham signed uh, Pablo Futra in that season as well, who played nine games, uh, dislocated his knee and then announced his retirement in the same season. So it was kind of a mixed bag for foreigners. But it was certainly, it wasn't like it is now. It wasn't like 75% of the teams was made up with foreigners. It was mostly homegrown individuals. Would you have, was Ginola playing in that Newcastle team? It would have been one of, I think. Yeah, I in think that he would have been as well. Yeah, they'd have, they'd have Ginola. Because like, Newcastle had a couple, of, a couple of good foreign players at the time, didn't they? Yeah, well, it was the first season Alan Shearer went to Newcastle as well. It was yeah. two years after Blackburn won the title and they just crumbled and destroyed themselves. So Shearer went back home that season as well, despite the rumours linking in with Manchester United. Yeah, no, it's a good season, that, Jim. It's pretty decent. I mean, Niall, I'm interested. I mean, Portsmouth. <laughs> Go on, give me a season. Yeah. Oh, he's going to say that one where he won the FA Cup, isn't he? No, I'm not, actually. I'm not. Oh. I'm not. i tell you what... Um, if you're talking about the greatest ever Premier League season, it's the one you've picked, Adam, isn't it? It's the, it's the 2012 season where mm. Aguero scores that yeah. goal. And actually, I found out the other day, did you know that was Mario Balotelli's only ever Premier League assist? Was the one he laid on for Aguero? That's unbelievable, that. That's a great yeah, stat. But, I knew um, that. Yeah, if that's yeah. the greatest one, then the greatest one from a Portsmouth perspective for me would be the 2005-2006 Premier League season. Um, Portsmouth did the great escape. We were cut adrift towards the bottom end of the table and we looked destined for relegation. We went through managers like Velomir Zayech and Alan Perrin before Harry Redknapp made a return to the club after being relegated with Southampton, our bitterish rivals, the season before. So that was... um, Met with a mixed reception, is fair to say. Harry Redknapp coming back to the club. A lot of people weren't very happy about that because it's, you know, it's the the old Judas, isn't it? You don't go to your rivals and come back and expect to be greeted with the same grandeur as you would have been before. But anyway, Harry came back in. The fact he claimed as well he didn't know there was as much rivalry, didn't he? Oh, he's in Southampton. Despite the fact he's lived in Southampton for the last like thirty years, he was like, oh, I didn't realize they didn't like each other very much. Yeah, well, he, 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 he would say that. He also said that he couldn't read and write, and then a few years later was advertising cryptocurrency on Twitter so I I do wonder about Harry Redknapp sometimes Um, but Portsmouth did the great escape West Bromwich Albion Birmingham and Sunderland ended up getting relegated Sunderland got relegated with 15 points but actually it was a game against Manchester City which kind of secured Portsmouth's um, kind of (laughs) 
rise like a phoenix from the dead really it was uh, a game in which David James was in goal for Man City at Fratton Park and Pedro Mendes was playing for Portsmouth and scored two absolute screamers in the same game two volleys from outside the <laughs> box David James was rooted for both of them um, and we won the game 2-1 and it, ke- it kept us up basically that was the kind of the catalyst for us staying up um, so from a Portsmouth perspective I'll go for that 0506 we finished in 17th place four points above the relegation zone eventually but in terms of an, a season as a whole it was also a brilliant season because it was Jose Mourinho's second season in the Premier League Chelsea were champions I think they were the one of the first teams to kind of unseat Manchester United since uh, since Arsenal a couple of years before Manchester United second and it was the days of the the top four the traditional top four Chelsea Manchester United Liverpool and Arsenal fifth and sixth were Tottenham and Blackburn and then Newcastle was seventh Um, and it was just a proper good Premier League season where Manchester United and Chelsea kind of developed it was the embryonic stages of this rivalry that we would then see develop into the 2008 Champions League final and it was the start of kind of um, Jose becoming a, a top top class manager and I don't think he lasted much long uh, the season after before he left to go to uh, Inter Milan so um, I remember that very fondly Jose coming into the league Manchester United having top players but again not quite uh, making the um, the charge for the title and then Pompey doing the great escape so for me that was a, an all-round top season. Right, well for me I was thinking um, I was actually quite glad Jim mentioned the 96-97 season because that was the first one for me that, that sprung into my uh, into my head um, but because that's been mentioned and for reasons why it's been mentioned obviously Newcastle beating Man United 5-0 that was one of my sort of earliest uh, memories of Newcastle being a good team um, but I'm actually going for the 2002-2003 to uh, season uh, where Newcastle were led by Bobby Robson um, and for me, it was just it was the the it was my favourite because we were we were very very good at that at that point. Um, we finished third in the league, um, just behind uh, Arsenal and, and Man United. But the main thing was um, we were playing in the Champions League that that year, um, which is crazy to believe now because we're rubbish now. But uh, we played in Champions League and we we <laughs> were the first team and until very recently the only team to. Um, ever lose their first three games in the Champions League and still qualify from the group. So we were in a group with, uh, I think we were in a group with K- uh, Dynamo Kiev, Feyenoord and Juventus. And we lost all three f- uh, games at first and we won the second three games to qualify. And they were in the days where we um, you, you had two group stages in the Champions League. So then we went into the second group stage and we ended up with Inter Milan, Barcelona, and uh, Bayer Leverkusen, and unfortunately we didn't qualify from that one. But it was just them, them memories of having Inter Milan, Barcelona, Juventus, um, and all these big teams coming to St James's Park, and also going there on a, on away away trips like that, to uh, to show that like your team could actually get up to the European elite. And uh, it was then that we were we had an amazing squad. Um, like Shearer, Bellamy, uh, Speed, uh, Nobby Solano, Lauren Robert, all these, all these good players. Uh, Jermaine Genus, a young Genus, um, Shoulder Amiobi, Jonathan Woodgate, all these, all these players that we'd we'd love to have the caliber of these days. Um, but that was that was the first sort of memory of of us really like troubling the elite, and obviously it was all down downhill from there. As soon as uh, as soon as we went out of 
of that and Bobby Robson eventually got sacked and replaced by I think it was Graham Sooness. Uh, it was all downhill from, <coughs> downhill from there. It was a good side that I remember. Was that with the NCL sponsor? It was, yeah. Yeah, I, do, I just remember they were a good, they were a good side. Kieran Dyer as well was uh, was was decent around that time. And I remember th- thinking, well, you know, because they had that kind of after the, after Keegan, it had kind of when they were right up there, they had that lull, didn't they? And I thought, oh, the the, the back here. But yeah, I, I remember that. I, I remember watching some of the European games as well. For, and they were, I, rem- I imagine as a Newcastle fan, they were exciting. Yeah, they were great because we we had that way of that way of playing. Of we weren't we weren't scared. We weren't particularly good at the back, and we were we were pretty good up front so it was a it was always an attacking sort of game and that's that's probably why we came unstuck against the 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 likes of you know Barcelona <laughs> and Inter because they could defend and attack and we could only do one of them so we we just chucked everything at them and had fun while we were there and mm. that's it that's one of those memories where you you remember your team being good and you hope one day that you can get back there but it's a long way off at the minute, isn't it? Let's be honest. Well, the best thing about all those examples is you can watch them pretty much constantly on telly at the moment because every single sports channel is re-showing like, the best Premier League years. So you can go back and rediscover them. We'll do one really quick question before we get to a little break. Uh, so quick answers on this, please. It comes from Mike as well. And he says, is the Premier League the best league in the world, as people say? I'm going to defer to you guys on this because I'm a bit of a football Luddite. My knowledge of European football is quite limited outside the Premier League. So I'm going to refer to you, you folks, and you can chip in on this one. Adam, you can go first. Yeah, uh, I, I think it is the best. Um, it's hard because when you say the best, um, I don't think we necessarily got the best teams. Um, but I think in terms of um, you know how competitive it, it, it can be, and it's shown obviously the last couple of years, Liverpool getting right up there. Uh, every now and again, you get a different team that breaks through, albeit a team that get you know largely gets money. Obviously, in the case of Chelsea and City, I think it is the best. Um, I do try and watch as much European football as I can, um, and I do think that you've got some leagues where they are completely dominated by two teams max, really, and you know what you can pretty much predict uh, every year who's going to win it. I know that you could argue that the Premier League got like that a couple of seasons ago but I think now it's kind of freshened up a little bit more and obviously we've seen the decline of certain teams like United and Arsenal aren't the team they used to be and the rest of it so uh, for me I just think that yeah f- I, I do think it is th- the best in the world I never really be- I never really got the whole thing about the Spanish league I'm not really that into it me I think it's quite predictable and, and quite boring so for me it is the best uh, It depends isn't it I think it all depends on what you class as best and I think as Adam says is it the most competitive or the best teams and the best players because if you're talking about what's the most competitive league in the world in terms of a top flight I would say it definitely is the Premier League I think there are more competitive leagues in the world that aren't top flight divisions I think the championship is ridiculously competitive I think the National League to get into the the football league down at the fifth tier of English football is one of the hardest leagues to get out of on earth so I think you know if you're talking about um, a top flight competition, I'd say the Premier League was was the best in that aspect. But I think Pep Guardiola said something interesting about this. He said, if you're looking at the best teams in the world, well, look at the amount of European trophy winners that have come from Spain over the last few years. Uh, you know, you look at um, Unai Emery when he was at Sevilla, won the, U- uh, the UEFA Cup or what's it called now, the Europa League three times in a row. Champions League winners have been Barcelona and Real Madrid over the last 10 to 12 years. They've absolutely dominated the European landscape. Real Madrid have won four Champions Leagues in the time that Gareth Bale has been at the club. And that's been like six, seven years. So, you know, that just goes to show the dominance. So I think if you're talking about 
how good teams are and how good a league is on the quality of their sides and their players. You'd probably say Spain, but in terms of competition, I think the Premier League is the best league and therefore I think it's the most exciting league as well. So for me, I, I would back the Premier League, but I think it is ran close by Spain. But saying that, I think Crystal Palace or Norwich beat Hetafe or Rio Vallecano every day of the week. So that just goes to show the, the difference in, yeah. in, in opinion there. It's the fact it's from top to bottom competitive that makes the Premier League so appealing, I guess. Precisely, yeah. Right, let's take a little break on Football Social Daily. Mm. We'll come back in a little bit and answer more of your questions on our AQA podcast. We'll see you in a bit. Football Social Daily with German Donner Kebab. Slow-cooked, succulent meats delivered fast to your door. Search for us via Uber Eats and Deliveroo. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Welcome back. This is Football Social Daily, the last one of the week. So we're covering off your questions. If you have questions for us, you can search The Sports Social on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, find us in any of those places and get your questions in before next Friday when we record the next AQA podcast. We're going to crack on with your questions and Marley, you've got the next one. Uh, yeah, thank you for giving me this one because I know exactly why you've done it. It's because you can't pronounce his uh, username on Instagram, can you? <laughs> <laughs> well spotted. And neither can I. Um, so it's it, three or something like that. Uh, if you're listening, just... Give us a message because we don't know how to say that. And I looked through his profile before as well. I couldn't actually find his actual first name. Uh, but anyway, he said, did the league... It's got no vowels in his name at all. Yeah, that's a thing. It looks like... like... No, it's like B-N-Y-S-R-T-H-Y. It's like the weekend. He's just taken all the vowels out. Yeah. There's two E's in weekend, Jim. No, the, the, the artiste of the weekend. <laughs> There's still two E's in weekend, I Jim. Yeah, I, thought you hadn't, I thought you took them all out. All right, MG, all right it's like MGMT <laughs> band who used to be called the management... <laughs> <laughs> the out. There you go. There's a good analogy that works. <laughs> uh, it's like you've been on countdown and just asked for like eight consonants and no vowels. <laughs> uh, anyway, his question is: Did the league ever consider a challenge system for VAR, as in something like two challenges per match made via the captains, etc.? I don't think they ever considered it. No, but certainly maybe when um, mm. you were looking at similarities of technology in other sports that sounds very similar to the system they use in cricket actually where captains in a cricket match have two referrals um, when they can take it upstairs to a video umpire who's sat in a in a studio who's actually at the ground so he has the technology at the stadium so he knows exactly what's going on he's not hundreds of miles away in Stockley Park for example so that's what happens in cricket the umpire makes a decision and if the player feels that the decision or the captain feels the decision is unfair, they can then um, uh, make a challenge on the field. So generally, when the team's fielding in cricket, the captain makes the decision. But of course, when you're batting, the captain might not always be the one batting. He might be out or not out there yet, etc., etc. So players can make challenges. The difference with this is, is that it's used as a tactical premise in cricket. So often, for instance, if you get someone out and that last person to get out means you win the game... The batsman, even though he knows he's out, might make a review to kind of uh, make it, I don't know, just tactical, just on the off chance that there might be a mistake that's been made, even though he probably knows that the correct decision was made. So I think maybe football has avoided this just because the referees get challenged enough during the game. And I don't think, I think there's been a lot of talk about 
and the VAR officials and asking referees to go over to the screen and change their decisions and talk about undermining the man in the middle, the actual referee on the day. And I think having challenges, although I quite like the idea, I think it will add an extra element of entertainment to the game. Um, I just think this will undermine the referees even more. I think you'll see players challenging uh, the referees' decisions a lot more than, than you it, think. It works all right in tennis as well. You know, when you have when they can they can contest the decision and, and then it does the instant replay. And I mean, but it's the speed of that I think which is quite quite good. And I think um, it's the same as cricket as well. Sometimes that's used tactically to disrupt another yeah. player, and also it's the volume of calls, both in yeah. cricket and in tennis. Every single phase of play, so every single game has a multitude of calls in it. In tennis, there's every single shot could potentially be out in cricket it's every single bowl could be a no bowl or could nick the bat or anything like that so it's the volume of calls that's a fundamental difference isn't it yeah and I've said this before as well with cricket what you find is if the batsman's hit the ball there is clear and obvious which is the word that the Premier League like to use evidence that the ball has hit the cricket bat and then landed in the hands of a fielder which means that they're out if you're passing a decision from a referee in the middle to a referee in a box that referee in the box might not think that the foul in the penalty area was enough contact for it to be a penalty, whereas the referee in the middle did. And if the captain mm. challenges and sends it to a different referee, all you're doing is passing the opinion of one referee onto another referee. And then we have this debate again as to whether they're going to be kind of a referee's union and have each other's backs or whether they're going to overturn each other. Whereas in cricket, if it's out, it's out. There's no arguments about that. Every umpire knows if the ball hits the bat and then it lands in someone's hands without touching the ground, that's a catch and you're out. That's the rules. Whereas in football, it's more subjective as to whether a foul is a penalty or a free kick or whatnot. I don't think it was considered yeah, I... and I don't think it will be considered. And I think there's two reasons for that. One of them you kind of touched on in that it's almost an admission of failure if they say, right, we're going to reduce the VAR system to just two calls in a game. You can just use it twice. And it's kind of an admission that it's not really working fundamentally as it should. And it, it becomes a different thing, as you say. It, gets, it becomes a tactical tool rather than an actual tool to ensure fairness, which is the reason it was brought in. And that's the other reason I don't think they'll ever consider it, because it doesn't solve that problem. Because the reason VAR was brought in, because it was felt there were too many decisions that were being got wrong. And if you go to a challenge system, you're still going to have 10, 20 decisions a weekend that are got wrong. It just reduces that slightly. So I, I don't think they'll consider it. There will be an adjustment with VAR. I don't know what it's going to be, but I don't think it'll be the challenge system. I mean, just looking at the way it works in tennis as well. So each um, player gets two challenges. So they'll receive two challenges per set to review line calls. If they get if they're correct with the challenge, they retain the same number of challenges. If you're incorrect, then you want you lose one of the challenges. So you, you've got to like be careful where you use them. Obviously, two per set. But the problem with it is, is kind of what Niall was saying, is that even if you're the captain of a football team and you decide to use one of your challenges, the ultimate decision is still subjective in some cases. Do you know what I mean? So if you go, if you say I'm challenging that, and you go, oh no, it's a foul, you could still in your back of your mind think, I don't think it was a foul, but ultimately. The referee's decision's final, so you might as well have just sacked off the challenges and gone. Listen, you make the decision. It doesn't matter if I challenge it or not. Do, do you know what I mean? It's a. It, it, I think it could add something, but it's there's probably a way to make it work. But I don't know what that way to make it work is yet. Do you know what I mean? I think this got like it have to have a lot of fine tuning and 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 seeing how it could benefit it rather than like you say, make it an admission of failure, like you said, Jim. 
Right, so we've had another question here from uh, Danny the Red on Twitter, uh, who says, who is the one player that Man United should go all out to sign this summer? Um, now, I'm going to say a player that United have been linked with. Uh, there's been a couple of potential question marks, mainly been portrayed over, through the media about this, but I think it could still happen. Um, I think the one player that should go out for this summer is Jack Grealish, um, undoubtedly. I think he's a player that United need. I think he is the next big England star. I think he's got something that United are lacking. I think he's got a slight edge on the other English midfielders that have maybe been linked with United, like James Madison. I think um, Grealish is a better all-round player. I think he's got a bit more imagination about him. I think he can create more. I think he scores more goals as well. I would go all out because I think the longer you leave it, the higher his stock's going to rise and the higher his price is going to rise. Villa, you know, whatever happens, Villa, they're probably going to go down. If they don't, it's going to be a... He's not going to stick around for for much longer at Villa. So I think don't um and ah about it. Don't make the same mistake they made before about leaving another season. He is perfectly in line to leave. I don't think the Villa fans will be too annoyed at him for leaving this season. I think United have just got to do it. And listen, I think if they get him, they can really make something in that midfield with him and Bruno there. I think they've got to go for it. I don't. I don't see what the negative about going for Grealish is this season. I think they'll get a good price in him as well. I'm going for uh, a chap called Sergei Milinkovic Savic, which would certainly make United a lot of money down the club shop with the length of his surname. Uh, it's even got a hyphen in it as well, <laughs> so uh, you're definitely going to be getting uh, your money's Edward worth. Edward already, now. Absolutely, he loves it. Uh, he's 25 years old. Um, he is a Serbian international. He currently plays for Lazio and if you've been following the Italian Serie A, you'll know that um, Upon the suspension, uh, Lazio were actually in a very, very good position near the top end uh, of the Italian league table. Um, it was basically between um, uh, Inter Milan and Juventus for the majority of the season. But over the last few weeks, Lazio uh, have really come good and, and kind of come through. Uh, and they're currently just a point behind Juventus at the top uh, of the table in second place. Inter have dropped off a bit. They're on 54 points, which is eight points behind now Lazio. And Milinkovic Savic has kind of been turning heads for a few seasons. Um, He's another one of those players that came through the Belgian league as well. Uh, He moved from uh, his native Serbia to Genk in Belgium, but then moved to Lazio in 2015. Uh, And he's very much uh, an elegant midfield player. He's a very good ball carrier. And I think he could be a good replacement for someone like Nemanja Matic or maybe that, you know, even a Scott McTominay, a good partner for him in in the centre of midfield. I just think they need something a little bit more solid in that central midfield area. I don't think Pogba's going to stay. And although Pogba and Fernandes, they're kind of, made to be made out as the same sort of player uh, and Fernandez is definitely going to get that starting berth I think for the foreseeable future um, even if Pogba does stay I still think Milinkovic Savic ad- adds a little bit uh, something a little bit different to Manchester United if he does join so for me I would say go all out for him I mean he's going to cost a few quid but I mean he's not in one of those positions where you'd expect to fork out top dollar like a Grealish or like a, a Jaden Sancho, for example, in an attacking position. He does hold up for a little bit deeper. Uh, he can get forward. He does like to uh, does like to try and roam the edge of the box as well. So for me, I think uh, Milinkovic-Savic would be an astute buy for Manchester United just to add a little bit of extra steel to that midfield if um, if Pogba leaves and Nemanja Matic doesn't get a look in for the next couple of years. I think there's one more I just want to put forward as well that I think could be uh, an easy win. Uh, is Donny van der Beek from uh, Ajax 
Um, there's been a lot of talk about him as well. Um, there was rumor, obviously, they, they, they've got um, there's rumors linking with Arsenal and also Real Madrid. Um, but he's looked like he's he's had a good couple of seasons at Ajax there. And um, if you look at what happened with uh, you know Frankie De Jong when he went to uh, Barcelona, it's looking like it could be another similar situation that whoever gets him next is going to have a real bargain on their hands. So I think Ajax notoriously bring players through and you get them for quite cheap, <laughs> like weirdly, and then they get sold on three or four years later for like ninety million. So I think someone like Donny Van der Beek as well could be uh, could be a good shout for United. I think it's really interesting that neither of you have mentioned centre-forwards because I think that is an area where Manchester United really need to improve. They need that 20-goal-a-season centre-forward. And if they're going all out, if we're talking about money, he's no option. I don't think it'll happen, but Harry Kane's kind of like the obvious, mm. as close as you can get to no-risk option they can go for. If they need to look a bit further afield, then Lorenzo Martinez at Inter Milan could be a decent option, I think. He's kind of your classic small South American forward. He's not been massively prolific in Italy, but at the same time, he's 22 years old and he's having a great season this year. 11 goals and 22 in the league, five goals and six in the Champions League. Hotly tipped prospect. I mean, he'll be absolute bucks to get him in. You're probably looking at 80 million quid or something along those lines, but I think he could be a decent option for Manchester United. Yeah, maybe, but I mean, if you look at Inter Milan, they play what car, uh, what. Carlo Ancelotti, what's his name? What Antonio Conte loves, and that's that three at the back, the three-five, uh, three-five-two sort of formation. Um, playing up top alongside Lukaku, I mean, you're going to get a lot of knockdowns, and you're going to get a lot to feed off. That's yeah. a good player to play alongside. I don't think Manchester United will play like that. They like to play like a four-two-three-one or a four-three-three diamond um so that's what Solskjaer kind of prefers and whether Martinez will fit into that I'm not sure but he is only 22 he's young as you say and he's got a bit of time on his side and he's just starting to come good in Serie A but yeah strikers I mean I, I did think strikers would probably be a good option to go down but Marcus Rashford is class He's top class, and I know he plays off the left, but he's been bagging goals for fun this season, not just from set I think pieces. They need, that player to, they need someone to play through the middle for him, don't they? I, mean, and I, I, I get what you're saying about Rashford, but he has had the opportunity to play through the middle, and he's so never quite scored enough goals in that position. Is is Anthony Martial not good enough for you then? I don't. I think he's proved he isn't. Now. Martial's too. He's all over the place when he. Sometimes he's mint, and sometimes he's sometimes he's awful. And when he's bad, he's really really bad. I mean, he looks like he just doesn't want to be there, but. When he's when he's on form, he's fantastic. But he cost fifty odd million quid about five years ago, and he, I don't really think Man United have got enough out of that that type of player. Um, there was an add-on of, of of him in the deal of uh, winning the Ballon d'Or, and that that's how highly they they seen his stock rising. And he's nowhere near that level at the minute. He's not even like it's took him five years to actually. For them to say, right, we're going to play him down the middle. He scored a few goals. This he's never scored more than eleven goals in a Premier League season, which just isn't good enough uh, as a as a guy who you're trying to build your whole team around. Yeah, I mean the thing about Martial is that you know you think about his time at United, he, he's kind of never really managed to get that. He, he's kind of he's. It's similar to what's happened to Rashford in the sense that he's sometimes been put out wide then he's been put in the middle obviously when he was first there he had a season then Ibrahimovic came in and it was all about him and then Lukaku came in so Martial's kind of been you know is that a sign that they've not trusted him when they brought other people in uh, and I'm thinking I mean I put it this way as, as a, if you're a United fan if Martial got sold in the summer would you look back at his time at United and say it was a success or not I don't know what do you think no, you'd just Absolutely probably say not. no, wouldn't you? But then, 
I don't, I don't know if they're going to go with Martial. They've got to go all in on him and say, "Listen, you're our, you're our guy." I think he, he to me, he strikes me as that kind of player where he seems quite surly. He seems quite, you know, up and down in the sense that he needs someone to probably put an arm around him and back him and say, "Listen, you're our number one guy. Go and do it." But he gets the chances, and for me, he doesn't seem to score enough goals. But the question is, Jim, like you say about strikers, I was inclined to say a striker, but I just don't know who realistically would go. You know, and I know we're saying all out and money's no object, but it's half me to get beyond that and go. Well, who's available? Who could United get? Who would go to United? I, I, I'm struggling. I think it's interesting though. You talk about United and say who would leave the club now after five years and be considered a success. Well, would mm. any of them? Manchester United have been poor for the last five years by their standards. I mean, only Rashford really. Would you be able to say actually has done enough? I mean, Paul Pogba hasn't been fit enough, hasn't played enough, hasn't showed enough of what we saw at Juventus and for France in the World Cup. So actually, you could level that accusation at any of the Manchester United players over the last five years, I'd argue. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, in terms of ones that they've paid money for and brought in to be a, to, to be a success. Yeah, I mean, look at the ones that we mentioned. We're, we're talking about Rashford and McTominay, who cost them nothing. Yeah. You know, but we're talking about players that they brought in for substantial amounts of money. Mm. You know, you're looking at the likes of Martial, Pogba, um, you know, players that they've actually spent decent amounts of money on are, are the ones that have come into really. I mean, look at Rashford and McTominay were brought in as as prospects. They would, they were probably when they first been, were brought into the team. I mean, Rashford, you know, the, all them years back with Van Gaal and McTominay, what a couple of seasons ago under Mourinho, they were brought in as like, the, oh, they're going to be promising youngsters to play squad roles. The two of the best players United have got at the minute. Let's try and squeeze in a couple more questions before we wrap up on today's podcast. Uh, who's got the next one? I think you've got it, haven't you, Marley? Uh, I've got another one, yeah. Uh, from Oscar, this one. Um, maybe one for Adam to start with. Uh, for how much longer will Pep stay at City? If he's there next season, do they have a good chance of winning the Premier League? Yeah, I think he will be there next season. I think you've got a couple more years, maybe. I don't know. I think that the whole kind of situation and the, the way that this season sort of petered out a little bit and the way, the way it's ended, really, um, has kind of stopped a lot of the speculation around around Pep now. Um and I think it's almost it's ground everyone to a halt in terms of speculating about him going to a different club and and, and not continuing at City. Uh, I think he will be there next season, and I think we've we've still got a chance of winning the Premier League next season. Um, I do think we'll strengthen in the summer. And the thing about Guardiola is, you know, he's got quite a cool, calm and collected exterior, but he'll be fuming underneath. Underneath that, he'll be absolutely fuming that this season's panned out the way it has. So I think they've got a as good a chance as anyone at winning the Premier League next season. I still think it will be largely a, a two-horse race between City and Liverpool, but I think we'll be right up there again this year. I think we'll be closer to Liverpool next season than we were this year. Because I think he'll account for the fact that injuries really did us over at the start of the season. I know we've been a bit all over the place in terms of form, but I do think that he will not take the chance that he took this season on not having enough backup, especially in defence. I think when you've got Pep Guardiola as your manager, you've always got a chance of winning the league. I just, Especially with the the quality yep. that Manchester City have got in their squad and I know that's probably likely to change over the summer and in the transfer window whenever that may actually come to light but um, we might see some changes and, and Pep Guardiola I think he wants the Champions League with Manchester City I think that's the real monkey on his back and I think the Premier League um, we've seen this season even before it got suspended that Manchester City had almost kind of given up hope on the Premier League. I mean, the 25-point gap's massive, isn't it? Liverpool are going to win the title, there's no doubt. So yeah. the eggs then went in the Champions League basket. So depending on what happens with the Champions League this season, we might see 
um, that monkey off, off the come off the back. If Manchester City do win it, if the Champions League does continue, then maybe we might see a different approach to the Premier League next season. Um, so we'll have to wait and see. But I just think that the Champions League is now more of an interest to City fans than the Premier League. I think that novelty of being... Fans, yeah, I think, think? Yeah, 100%. I, th- 100%. I think the whole UEFA thing still means... I mean, you're the City fan, Adam, but it feels to me like a lot of City fans still, yeah. because of the hatred of UEFA, still don't care that much about the Champions Well, League. I think it's the complete opposite, Jim. If, if you hated someone, imagine going and winning their tournament. Imagine how much that would annoy UEFA. How much would that piss UEFA off and give glee to City fans that they went and win the Champions League ahead of a possible ban for two seasons? You know, that's just... Can you imagine it? I mean, I don't know what Adam feels. He's the City fan here, but... Yeah, yeah. do you know what? I think there's, yeah, there's a little bit of truth in both of them, but I think uh, I'm a little bit more inclined to agree with Niall on this, is that it's big, it's made us have this like weird sort of steely sort of determination that we're going, well, what they're going to do then if we win it? Do you know, uh, that, that's, mm. what, that's what the, the rhetoric has been uh, from a lot of City fans that I've been speaking to of, of going, oh, wouldn't it be amazing if we won it? I mean, every season we want to win it, don't get me wrong, but there's something a bit more special of like... UEFA in a bit of a, a spot then <laughs> if we do win it like what the hell do they do um, you know City fans have been indifferent towards the uh, towards the, the Champions League for, for a number of years you know I've said it before on the podcast that it's still a little bit of a you know we've never really kind of clicked in that in, in that tournament I think probably this season is, is probably one of the seasons that we've actually felt like we were we had a decent chance of, of getting to the latter stages. Um, but yeah, I think for Guardiola, especially now, as more seasons go on and, and he doesn't win it year after year, I think underneath it, again, I think he is very, very, very determined to get his hands on that trophy. Uh, and I think that's going to be his main focus next season. Okay, so the last question we've got uh, comes from Stuart on Twitter and he says, who is the top scorer in the history of the second division? I have absolutely no idea. Right. Now, if you've got no idea, I've got. I, this is a question that if you were on my pub quiz team, I'd want you there for this because well, I thought you'd know it. I want to say, well, I know the top scorer in the last decade of the football league is Billy Sharp. I know he scored more football league goals than anyone else in the last ten years. Whether that means he's the top scorer in the history of the second division, I don't know. Jim, do you have any idea? I've got a an inkling, but um, this is only via trying to look into get the answer rather than knowing it. So. The top scorer in the championship is David Nugent with 121 goals in 237 games. He did that for Preston, Derby, Borough, Leicester and Pompey. But that, that's obviously only the championship. Oh. Beyond that, so there was a fella called Arthur Rowley and he played 619 matches for West Brom, for Fulham, for Leicester City and for Shrewsbury Town. This was in the kind of mid-40s to mid-60s. In those 619 matches, he scored 434 goals. Now, some of those goals were scored in the top division with Leicester City, but he only looks, from what I can tell, that he played a couple of a couple of seasons in the top divisions. And I also looked at the who was the top goal scorers in the top division historically, and he doesn't appear in any of those lists. So that suggests that all of those four, or a lot of those 434 goals were scored outside of the Premier League or Division 1 or whatever it was called at whatever point. So I think, although there seems to be no official record or official chart, I think Arthur Rowley is our man here. Fair play. 400-odd goals is some record regardless of what league you're in. I mean, that's a, that's a hell of a in, tally. In just over 600 matches as Unbelievable. well. Unbelievable. Sign him up. 
I, I was I initially was going to say Steve Claridge or Steve Bull. Oh, Steve Bull's <laughs> a good shout at Wolves. Yeah, they came they came to they came to mind. But yeah, I, I mean, I thought I thought Steve because he I mean he was playing for England when he wasn't even in the top division, mm. and he was bagging goals. Um, and I just thought Claridge has played for about. Here's 19. why I think it's so difficult to find an answer to this question, and it makes a lot of sense when you think about it. If you're prolific in the Championship or Division 2 or whatever it is called at any stage, if you're banging them in, you don't stay in that division. You get picked mm. off and you end up in the Premier League. So the people who are the real bagsmen in the lower leagues yeah. end up not playing in the lower leagues anymore. So that's kind of why it doesn't quite correlate. In the top 10, and you look at some of the, the, the players and, and I thought it's like a, a list of, of players that haven't quite made the grade in the, in the, in the Premier League. So you've got in there David Nugent, Ross McCormack... <laughs> <laughs> um, you've got um, Jordan Rhodes, Lewis Graben, and uh, Dexter Blackstock and Danny Graham all in the <laughs> <Yeah>. top ten. <laughs> right, that is it for today's AQA podcast. All your questions answered. Thank you very much. Some good questions today as well. Get yours in for next week. Search The Sports Social on your various social media platforms and submit your questions via there. Before we go, we're currently in the middle of the world crap, our quest to find the worst Premier League player of all time. Marley is the man who's looking after. He's our... Uh, set platter of the uh, football social what's going on at the moment where are we up to with this marley uh we're in the we're in the final group stage at the minute so we're, uh, <clears throat> today we're doing uh, group four of four so in today's uh today's vote it's quite an even one to be honest uh we've got a former west ham player uh, as jim will allude to he's probably one of the worst ever uh, is roberto the goalkeeper roberto um second we've got igor stepanovs who was a former arsenal defender uh, who I've got a hilarious story about, I'll tell you in a minute. Um, Milton Nunes, who's completely forgotten about uh, until I googled him, and it turns out he played for Sunderland like once because he was that bad. Um, you got to be pretty bad if Sunderland call you bad as well. Uh, some of the players they've had over the years. Uh, and the fourth choice is Man United flop winger Bebe, who uh, I believe was Niall's pick for this uh, for this whole thing, but. Yeah, so we got them for it's pretty yeah pretty even as because uh, the votes just started. But as long as you're listening to this podcast before midnight on Thursday, you have uh, you have the chance to vote. Just go to our Twitter page at the Sports Social and uh, get your vote in. But who do you think's going to win this one, lads? I think it's got to be Roberto personally. Although you put a kind of little taster on the table of having a hilarious story about one of the players included, which I'm not going to let you tell now. I'm not going to let you tell it if he gets through to the final, because we're going to do the final on the first podcast back after the Little Easter break. i tell you what, Jim, if there's ever a reason to download the next podcast, I've got a story about Igor Stefanov. What a to entice me for the next podcast. Well, there we go. We'll leave that little fish, that little worm on a hook dangling for the next podcast. Click subscribe and you can get that as soon as it's ready. It will be out Tuesday. We will wrap up the Premier League world crap. We'll be talking about some of the worst players of all time in the Premier League. Make sure you do that. Niall, Marley, Adam, thank you very much, boys. Thank you. Cheers, Jim. Have a great Easter weekend. Stay inside, stay safe, and we'll see you next time on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily with German Donner Kebab. Get it delivered to your door via Deliveroo or Uber Eats. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today 
at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.